from the World Economic Forum. I'm Beatrice Di Caro, and this is the Book Club Podcast. Over 200 million people are expected to be forced from their homes by climate-related events in the coming 30 years. How will our societies cope with that challenge? Today's author believes far from being a problem, migration is in fact a solution to the worst consequences of global climate change. In this episode, we're joined by human geographer Parag Kanna, author of the book Move, The Forces Uprooting Us. In his book, Parag asks what map of human geography will emerge as our climate changes. He sketches a number of fascinating scenarios that range from the dawn of a new middle age to a fluid but stable and sustainable future of permanent migration and nomadic life for many. But what really drives these changes? What are the key forces at play? And how can we adapt them to ensure we avoid the worst outcomes? But first of all, what makes us migrate? Historically, if you take the grand sweep of history, then climate has always been a significant driver in our human geography. Going back to the retreat of the last ice age, more than 10,000 years ago, we began to settle in what the latitudes that scientists call the climate niche, right? Roughly between 20 and 30 degrees latitude. So of course, now with climate change accelerating, you know, this climate niche is shifting northward and, you know, a large share of the human population might need to do so as well. Whether it will is another question. So what other pressures affect migration and are they also something to consider around the world today? So let's take the last thousands of years where climate wasn't one of the factors, still people migrated. Because of course, politics was a major driver. Civil wars, international conflicts, genocides, and so forth. And that obviously carries all the way up through the present. If we look at you know a collapse of, of Syria and now Afghanistan and so on and so forth. Then, of course, there's economic crises and economic you know, rationales. So during the financial crisis of more than a decade ago, Southern Europeans moved to Northern Europe. Americans in the Rust Belt moved to the Sun Belt and so on. Labor automation. When your factory closes down somewhere, you have to move somewhere else in search of a job, right? Demographic imbalances. The mere gap between old and young right? And the labor shortages in aging countries have been a huge driver, especially in the 20th century. Think of uh, Turks in Europe, Latinos and Asians in the United States. So much of it was driven sheerly by demographic imbalances. Now, bottom line, every single one of these drivers is at its most intense point, right? All of them. And therefore, it's uh, not a great stretch as much as it stretches the imagination. It's not a very um, ludicrous assumption that with all of these drivers of mobility and migration in overdrive, that coming out of the pandemic, we will see an explosion of mass migration. And what I set out to do is to explore the new vectors, the new directions, the new geographies um, of origin and destination. And of course, can we handle it? And I believe we can. And I try to kind of create a roadmap for that. Your book outlines some probable scenarios which sketch out how the world might handle these various pressures. Um, you mentioned regional fortresses, the new Middle Ages, amongst others. Could you talk us through them? I do begin by exploring four scenarios, and they're not at all sci-fi. As you know very well, and the forum is a leader in scenario planning, um, you, know, you have to create scenarios that are not completely mutually exclusive because it should be possible for elements of all of them to be true at the same time. 
Otherwise, your scenario is not realistic and you shouldn't even build it, right? It has no plausibility. So I tried to construct four plausible scenarios and juxtapose them, but show how all of them will actually come true. And all of them are coming true at the same time right now in this world and will continue to. So they are built along two axes, you know, the uh, x-axis around more or less migration and the y-axis around more or less sustainability. So one of the scenarios is regional fortresses. It's the one that most resembles the present. It's where the clusters like North America, Europe, and Northeast Asia kind of wall themselves off and say, look, we're going to invest in sustainability for ourselves and self-sufficiency and energy and so forth. And we're, we might provide some technology to help the rest of the world cope with climate change, but we're certainly not going to absorb a lot of migrants, right? So globally, it may not be all that sustainable, nor is there a lot of migration. The new Middle Ages scenario is more like uh, you know, hunter-gatherer scramble, right? Because we have these cataclysmic chain reactions from a climate standpoint, supply chains are disrupted. We are left to our own local, you know, devices and have to, you know, scavenge in a way as cities and communities. And you have a political fragmentation as well that's very much reminiscent of the kind of medieval structure, particularly in Europe at the time. Um, and that's, of course, low sustainability and low migration. Barbarians at the gate is the third scenario, and that's low sustainability, high migration, because you have this, you know, just unbearable climate catastrophe. And, you know, people are leaving unsustainable red zones and, you know, seeking to knock down walls and borders and so forth. But you obviously are not having huge amounts of investment in global sort of, you know, ecological resilience either. Wow, so those are some pretty bleak outlooks, but you have another outlook you call Northern Lights, which takes into account a more fluid approach to migration, where populations move according to the local conditions, but where crucially our infrastructure is set up to accommodate that. Could you talk about that a little bit more? So Northern Lights actually means people are actually continuously moving and we become more nomadic in many ways. And therefore, we have to build our infrastructures and habitats accordingly to be more sustainable and enable mobility. So that's what Northern Lights lo looks like. And it doesn't look like anything we've had in the past unless you're looking at, you know, in a way, most of the last 100,000 years, the human species was nomadic, but not in a high tech sense. So a, a super high tech and sustainable you know, uh, uh, nomadism is sort of what the Northern Lights scenario looks like. And that's, you know, what was really fun about the book, because I didn't think I would be getting into like Kim Stanley Robinson sci-fi territory, but I started to. And it was very gratifying because it awakens you to the possibility of us actually using the technological tools that we have at our disposal today at a much more radically enhanced, you know, universal scale. Does everyone need to start moving to high-tech megacities? Uh, what do these places look like? So it's not really about, you know, can we build one giant megacity or several of them to house people? It's actually, can we um, achieve the, the resource production that is needed for human sustainability, meaning sufficient nutritional production and, you know, kind of uh, non-congestion, you know, walkability, cooperative frameworks that, you know, are, are better achieved at a local level and so forth, and do those as many times over as is needed for 
that large, you know, remaining population of the world, 8 billion people. So it isn't, you know, there isn't one silver bullet to answer that question, right? It, but obviously it comes down to the basics. We do have to be thinking about water. We have to be thinking about, uh, about food and about energy. And when we think about, you know, water, first of all, the places that are stricken by mega droughts um, are not the places where you want to be using the latest technologies like atmospheric water capture which is a really incredible and promising technology. But, you know, right now it can fill a swimming pool in a couple of days with fresh water. But, you know, you want to be thinking of that's still not enough for a town, right? So we need to be actually thinking about when we resettle people in the climate oases, which again is a term I use a lot in the book to designate areas that are sufficiently fertile, right? How do we move people there but not ruin those places as we move people there such that they would then have to flee again because we've ruined those places? We have a finite amount of space to work with, especially given the climate effects that we have created. So to me, the mission is uh, the best practices for this sustainable habitat development, scaling them in these climate oasis zones and absorbing people, but with much less footprint. And that is the thought process that we have to go through. So when you talk about ideas around nomadism and continual adaptation, for you, migration isn't just a challenge to be met, but it's actually a key way for us to adapt to the climate challenge. What can governments and businesses do to harness migration as a way to adapt to the climate challenge we all face? Of all the adaptation things we can do, such as the new kinds of urban you know, developments and you know, uh, housing settlements and, and habitats that we could do, that's adaptation. We don't talk in the COP26 process or anywhere about the single silver bullet, if you will, and that is mobility, that is migration. We don't talk about it. We, climate is over here. Migration is over here. Now, that's fairly obvious why. Because the one arena of sovereignty that remains sacrosanct for every government in the world, it's controlling who comes in and out of your borders. So we have to work piece by piece, country by country, region by region, to try to put migration into the climate adaptation agenda and raise that up the global agenda. And that's, of course, something for governments to take seriously. Companies play a big role as well because they are the ones who feel the labor shortages most, uh, you know, sort of they feel that pinch most immediately. You're going to have more and more countries saying, you know, we need more people. Right. And uh, and that's, you know, something I'm, I'm strongly advocating for. We know that, you know, ethically, morally and even economically in dollars and cents, immigration restrictions are bad economic policy. So I am for supply and demand, a principle that every business leader knows very well, dictating our immigration policy much more than you know, xenophobia and, and populism. So no doubt businesses play a role. And of course, in all of the innovation in the technological areas that, um, that we've been talking about there too, of course, it's business in the lead. And again, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic because the, of the incredible amount of innovation happening uh, in these areas and and the um, and the sort of successful deployment in some of these technolo technologies. And as you know very well, it's really all about scale, scale and political will. Many people would look around the world today and say migration is causing serious social difficulties. You have the rise of nationalism or nativism in many countries. Where does mass migration fit into that picture? We have, and this is something that everyone needs to be reminded of, whether you're pro or anti-immigration, for the last 100 years, we have had hundreds of millions, actually, you know, over a billion people resettle across continents and across oceans, almost entirely peacefully, mutually beneficially, and with political stability, 
right? We've already done this. There is nothing new here, right? We are very good at this. We are so bad at international cooperation in so many areas. Here's something that humankind has done incredibly well, welcoming people who have been victims of, uh, of, of genocides and international conflicts and civil wars. And we haven't done enough, right? Of course, so many more refugees could have been resettled from all of the conflicts of the last decades. But I'm talking about in the grand overarching right sweep of absorption of migrants, waves upon waves upon waves, crossing, again, continents and oceans. We've been doing this for 200 plus years at a massive worldwide scale. There's nothing new here. We should continue to do it and we should get out of the way of it. And we should devote way more uh, fiscal resources and political resources, not to debating whether or not immigration is good or bad, but to promoting assimilation, right? It's about integration. When I look at Europe, I say, by the numbers, Europe has does not have an uh, immigration problem. It has an emigration problem. It has a, uh, a fertility problem. The real political challenge, therefore, is assimilation of more migrants and a lot more positive efforts can go in that direction. And again, there's good case studies. Look at Germany, right, absorbing more migrants, growing its labor force in the process. You can see the efforts that migrants make to integrate and you can see that populist forces are very much on the wane in the country. So, you know, that's that is that is uh, the way it can look. You know, Canada is another example, even Japan. There have never been as many foreigners in Japan as there are right now as we speak. So even countries that we think of as insular and isolated and so forth, um, you know, can actually do this. So how do we plan this out? How do we prepare and plan for this uh, migratory future? Well, a very important concept in the book for me is uh, what I call pre-designing, right? Pre-designing the habitats that will be able to absorb larger populations to prepare them for it. So, you know, supply-led growth and, and those kinds of, uh, of concepts. And I want to kind of close with this. Think of the irony. The societies in the world that are depopulating the fastest, that have the you know, highest proportion of elderly people, are the ones that are the most sustainable and most livable in the future, right? Russia, shrinking population. Europe, shrinking population. You know, Canada, without immigration, would be shrinking. So I advocate, uh, you know, what I call a cosmopolitan utilitarianism, right? So, you know, fraternity with one and fellow man, but um, but also utilitarian, meaning seeking to improve the, the conditions, the living conditions and the welfare for as many people as possible. And that will require enabling, um, you know, people to leave areas that, again, through our own deeds have become unlivable and helping to resettle them in places that are. And we will be glad that we did because the world population is plateauing at just about, you know, less than 9 billion people potentially. So we have a self-interest in this because we need to actually preserve our numbers as a human species. And this is actually kind of actually, that's where the book begins, actually where, uh, where it ends, it's actually where it begins. Because, you know, we predicted 20, 25 years ago, demographers thought the world population would reach 15 billion people and we'd be in a Malthusian crisis, but we're not in such a crisis. We actually need to worry about collapse. Um, and so therefore we should be preserving our numbers and the surest way again to do so to adapt to adapt is to move. That was author Parag Kanna. Big thanks to him for joining us on the World Economic Forum Book Club podcast. Tune in next time to hear from renowned journalist Jillian Tett on her latest book, Anthrovision, how anthropology can explain business and life. Please subscribe to this podcast and best of all, leave us a review. 
Don't forget to join our book club on Facebook, which is coming up on 200,000 followers. And to discuss podcasts, please join the Forum's Podcast Club, also on Facebook. Please search out our sister podcasts, Radio Davos and Meet the Leader, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of the Book Club podcast was presented by me, Beatrice Dicaro. Production was with Gareth Nolan, and thanks to our podcast editor, Robin Pomeroy. We'll be back soon, but for now, thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.